He's a political legend, and without a doubt, one of our favorite politicos. We continue now with our chat with the legendary Congressman Pete McCloskey. Those first two years in Congress, when I'm coming home, my kids, the teenagers and the younger ones, eight, have no respect for me at all. At the dinner table, I'd bring up some subject, and they'd say, Oh, Daddy's playing congressman again. You know, that was the thing. You know, just bull puck. Until I go down to the Republican Convention, and Doonesbury has me in his column. His mother is my one delegate. He runs right, two right, panels. Right. And suddenly, in, I'm in Doonesbury, and I'm a hero to my kids. I mean, from then on, I was the national really? hero. Really? Because I was Doonesbury, and his mother was my delegate. You know, and there's all these voices, four more years, four more years, and one voice is saying, vote for McCloskey, lonely thing. That's my mother. That's Doonesbury's mother. Well, as Jerry Ford said about that time, there's three ways people find out what's going in Washington, the, the uh, print media, the electronic media, and Doonesbury, not necessarily in that order. Yeah. It's a great yeah, well, he was Jerry Ford was a wonderful guy, and the terrible mistake he made, he made it when Congress wasn't in session. We were all home in August. He pardoned Nixon, Yeah, and that killed him because the deal, everybody thought he'd made a deal. To be vice president, he'd pardon Nixon. He really pardoned Nixon out of the goodness of his heart. He'd made, he, he just couldn't see the nation going through the trial of Richard Nixon as it did through the trial of all those other guys. Well, what's your feeling on that? Do you think that was, I mean, there, there, it certainly was controversial at the time. To me, it made a certain amount of sense. If I'd have been there, I would have advised him to let Nixon go to trial. Okay. Because the president, if you remember, the, the, I can't tell you the, the feeling of goodwill that we had. Finally, those crooks are out of the White House, and we've got an honorable man as president, a decent man who'd played football at Michigan. They kidded him and said he couldn't chew gum and cross the street at the same time. But that was baloney. Ford was a wonderful, decent man. And I, uh, I loved him. And I, I testified for his confirmation at the Senate as vice president because well, one of the things, he was accused of taking money from the Siemens Union by a guy who wrote a book about the Siemens Union and the corruption and that Ford had been part of the corruption. And I knew what he was, and I'd been the ranking member of the Merchant Marine Fisheries, which was a corrupt committee. But I was able to testify for him, and, and we were friends forever after. I gather that when you were having some trouble in, in getting reelected because of the whole of the controversies and such, that uh, I guess Jerry Ford did come to bat for you. I was going to lose that election, the primary of 74, and Ford was vice president. Mm -hmm. But it was in June, and Nixon hadn't yet pled guilty, and all the Republicans said, give the president. He didn't know. How could he know what those crooks were doing? Mm -hmm. And so Ford agreed sometime like in April that he would appear the first week in June, week before the primary, at a reception for me. And my canny campaign chairman sent a letter to every Republican in our district that looked, bore the great seal of the vice president, but it looked like the seal of the White House. Would you join Vice President Ford and noon lunch from Congressman McClaskey? Well, time goes on. 
And it turns out that that same weekend, the Republican convention is held down the street on First Avenue at another hotel in San Jose, about three blocks away. Reagan, every Republican, wrote, don't go to McCloskey's deal. He's a traitor. He's against Vietnam. He's after our beloved president. Well, Ford had a wonderful staff guy, Bob Hartman. And Bob Hartman called me on Wednesday. He said, Pete, you can't believe every Republican in California has written or wired or called Ford and said, don't appear for McCloskey. He's a traitor. So Bob Hartman. He calls me and says, Pete, the president wants, the vice president wants to meet his commitment to you. He can't do it unless you have a moderate and a conservative on the platform with you. Well, moderate was easy. George Milius was an assemblyman from San Jose, moderate Republican. He was a But where the hell were we to find a conservative? Well, in high school, in high school, Robin Schmidt, who was my AA, and I were classmates with John Russelow who was really a Birch Society guy. You remember the first Birch Society, John Russell. Ours high school, South Pasadena, was the only high school in the country that ever had two guys in Congress at the same time. Russell is coming from Hawaii on a plane for seven hours. It lands at Dulles on the Friday before this thing. It's going to be noon and Saturday, and I had to give the president the word by Friday night that I'd have a conservative. Robin goes out to the airport at Dulles, Buys a ticket for John that goes from Dulles. Lives, leave, he was arriving at like at 8. This plane left Dulles at 9 and went to somewhere in Tennessee and then Arkansas and then Texas and landed in San Jose at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. So Russo was, if he was going to appear for me, had to be in a plane for like 14 hours with these crazy stuff. Robin Schmidt, who had run away from home in, in high school, and lived six months of the year with me in, my, in the maid's room of our house, South Pasadena, and six months of the year at Russelo's house in South San Marino. John didn't even blink an eye. He got, out, got the ticket, got on the plane, and I called Hartman and I said, I'm going to have John Russelo on the apartment. <laughs> so Ford appears with me at noon, and at 2 o'clock he's got to go down to this convention and, and address the Republicans who hate me. So that's friendship of Russelo, who was the manager of our baseball team. He had a bent leg. He'd gotten spread. So Russelo saved my life, and I saved, served another seven years in Congress. Was that the same election where you managed to convince some Stanford students to re-register as Republicans? Yeah, that's how I got elected. I wouldn't have been elected. I shouldn't have been in Congress, but, but Ford loved it. And when he became president, we, we stayed friends, and I'll never forget he was shot at out here in San Francisco twice in 17 days, once in Sacramento. Yeah. Of all the guys in the world, two women shoot at him, pistols. And he comes out and he gets on Air Force One and he invited me to drive back with him. And Betty Ford was coming up from a speech at Monterey. This is an hour after he'd been shot at. Jeez. And I'm on the plane. Betty comes up and says, how'd things go in San Francisco, Jerry? Oh, just fine, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> and we get on the plane. And I had just won this primary by 831 votes against this millionaire, Gordon Knapp, who said, we got to have a Republican that supports Nixon. And Jerry asked me, he said, Pete, what can I do for you? Because I'd flown him He said, I said, well, this guy has run against me twice. His wife is desperate to go to Washington. almost beat me this last time. Can you get him appointed to some federal job that will get him into Washington? <laughs> 
So Rumsfeld is there, and he turns to Rumsfeld. Don, he said, can you do do this for Pete? So Rumsfeld appoints this guy <laughs> as assistant secretary of the Air Force for logistics. Well, it turns out Gordon Knapp gets to come to Washington. His wife is part of Washington society. He had a lot of money. They're happy. Until Gordon learns what his job is. His job is, is to go around and tell Ed Muskie, we've got to close this air base in Maine, to go tell congressmen what they're going to close in the, in the closing of the bases. Mm-hmm. He leaves Washington after a year, never to return. He said, Congress are the biggest set of dummies in the world. <laughs> and he leaves Washington, never thinks of running for office. But that's what Jerry Ford did for me. He got Rumsfeld to appoint this guy to a job that got him to Washington, got him out of my hair. And after that, it was a pipe dream. I never had another election where I had any trouble. But those first four Republican primaries, 68, 70, 72, 74, I shouldn't have been elected. I mean, I, we registered Sanford kids as Republicans. We <laughs> many of them. So a bad political career, but a good guy. And now in that book I've written, I think Rumsfeld's a war criminal. Him and John Yu is attorney for saying torture is legal. And I like Don, but he did bad things, and Cheney was worse. Cheney, no argument from us. I'll tell you one other funny, funny story, which is true. I had been the leader in repealing the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which we did in 1970, and right after it became effective, Nixon invaded Cambodia, and I made that speech that that was an impeachable thing. He'd exceeded his powers. We'd repealed the resolution that allowed him to make aggression. He'd gone into a wholly new country, Cambodia. Well, in 73, we had a vote on the floor. We had now elected an anti-war Congress in 72. And on the floor, we had a debate about stopping the bombing on Laos and Cambodia. The Air Force still bombing the hell out of everybody. North Vietnamese had attacked in 72, and our bombers had obliterated them. So the question was in 73, could the bombing be stopped in August 15th, six weeks hence? And all the guys wanted to stop the bombing now. Tip O'Neill was the Democratic leader. I was the Republican leader of the anti-war faction. And if this amendment failed, the bombing would stop on August 15th. A lot of guys want the amendment to su- succeed, to bomb, stop it now, because a lot of people would be killed by those B-52s in the next six weeks. And I said, no, if we can get a permanent halt on the 15th. Mm-hmm. And the president agrees to that. And Jerry Ford got up in the last 10 minutes of the debate, a minority leader, and I'm, in the, I'm down on the floor speaking, and, he, and I said, Jerry said, I, it's my understanding that if this amendment fails, the president has agreed to stop all bombing forever in Southeast Asia. And I said, when a lawyer says it's his understanding, it means he's not sure. Ford went into the cloakroom, calls President Nixon at San Clemente, and comes back on the floor, and the last words in the debate are between me and him. And he says, I want to assure the gentleman from California that what I said was true and understanding. I've just talked with the president in San Clemente, and he has agreed if the amendment fails, he will stop all bombing and never again he will have the power to bomb in Southeast Asia. Laos camp. Well, the vote comes on as one of those squeakers. It ends up 404 a tie vote. And you know, in the last 10 minutes, people change their votes. Guys that have voted one way for their constituency, it didn't change. It stayed 404 to 4. The amendment failed, and the president had to stop. He had six more weeks to bomb the hell out of Cambodia, but then he had to quit. 
Well, they wanted to start bombing again in November, and the Defense Department General Counsel said, no, you can't do it. This dialogue between Ford and McCloskey means the president doesn't have the power to bomb in Southeast Asia. Okay. So two years passed, and I go to South Vietnam again. It's my fifth visit, and the delegation includes Bella Abzug and that wonderful woman from New Jersey that smoked a pipe. Uh, but anyway, we go to South Vietnam for seven days, and then we're going to fly to Cambodia for one. And in that seven days, the seven delegates all stay down in Saigon because the negotiations are going on. The North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, the South Vietnamese, they had a Polish and a Canadian and some other nation around this table, and they're growling at each other. But I had a Marine Corps friend that said, listen, Pete, he said, when you go over there, there's one general that's really top-notch, General T, T-H-I, and he commands up an I-Corps, Da Nang. So I fly up to Da Nang to talk to him. And I said, General T, Paul Lafond, who served with you, said that I could trust you and that you were competent, and the guy spoke English. And I said, what's the situation up here? This is... March of 1975, early March. And he says, Congressman, he said, we're in trouble. Chu has withdrawn the paratroop division and the Marine division and taken them down to defend Saigon because the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese hit some province outside of Saigon, occupied the province. It was right on the Cambodian border. And he said, he's left me with one division and one brigade, and he throws on a map, and here's the brigade and the division. And around them are three and a half North Vietnamese divisions. And he said, if they choose to attack, they will break through and cut Vietnam in half. They'll be in two weeks. They'll reach the ocean through Two Corps and I Corps. Two Corps was Pleiku up in the mountains, and I Corps was the five provinces along the north. We are speaking with former congressman and legendary maverick, Pete McCloskey. I, I looked at that, and, I, and I, I go back. And we land in Cambodia for one day. There are wrecks of aircraft. They're rocketing the airport. The perimeter around Phnom Penh is like 30 miles. Wow. And the, and the Khmer Rouge are coming in. Well, I asked a Marine captain, the attache, they'd evacuated everybody but the Marine captain and a couple other guys, the ambassador. I had the Marine captain take me around the perimeter outside him. And I, I, we came to a Cambodian army unit in the black and khaki uniforms. And I said, I, could I interview one of your prisoners? I want to know what the commander is. He said, we don't take any prisoners, and they don't either. And the paymaster had just come up, and these guys were madder than hell. The paymaster had come up, and he had only half the money to pay him. So they'd shot him and cut out his liver, and each of the, of the Cambodian army guys had a piece of his liver. That was kind of a custom that... I wasn't familiar with before. But then Millicent Fenwick and I interviewed a bunch of refugees, and they all told the same story. The Khmer Rouge had come into it, five little guys in black suits with a rifle bigger than they were. Maybe we talked with the elders of the village. And the elders came out and bowed, and they took them in the bushes and stoned them to death, killed them, didn't waste bullets, killed them. So the refugees are all telling the same story. So when I get back to Washington, Jerry said, calls me. He said, Pete, you just got back. Could you and Dewey Bartlett, the Republican senator from Oklahoma, six were Democrats, can you come over to the Oval Office and tell me what you found out? Dewey hadn't been in the military, but I had, and so 
in the Oval Office, which is an impressive place. It's Jerry Ford, his chief of staff, Dick Cheney, and Henry Kissinger. Remember now, we got an anti-war Congress that's cutting the money off for Vietnam. The president said, Pete, what did you learn? And I said, well, I went to I-Corps, and I met General T up in Da Nang, and he showed me the line of battle up there with three and a half against one and a half. And he said, if the North Vietnamese chose to attack, now remember that debate with Ford, we'd stop the use of air power. Right. That had stopped them in 72. And I said, Jerry, he says if they attack, they will cut Vietnam in half in two weeks. Those three and a half divisions are regulars, are tough. I'll never forget this. Henry turned to Henry because Cheney never said a word. Dewey Barton didn't say a word. He turned to Kissinger. I said, Henry, is there any possibility that Pete is right? Oh, no, Mr. President. The South Vietnamese have 750,000 men in their army, 13 times as many artillery. They have air. They can hold off the North Vietnamese. Well, I said, well, Jerry, be that as it may, do what you can to help that people in Cambodia. If they can get through to the monsoon season in June, they may make it. But if the Khmer Rouge take over, there's going to be a slaughter. Well, I think it was two weeks later, North Vietnamese did attack. On April 15th, Nam Pen fell. Two million people would be killed as a result. On April 30th, I think we would evacuate Saigon in that shameful display of yeah. leaving behind the Vietnamese who'd helped right. us. That isn't the end of the story. About a year ago, I got a call if I would go down to make a documentary movie about the fall of Saigon. And they flew me down to Malibu and put me up at a hotel, and they had a big house in Malibu. They picked me up, drove me over there, and they had a television crew that filmed this. And the young woman that came out to meet me introduced herself. I said, you're a Kennedy. Because she had Bobby's and Ethel's face, mm-hmm. the teeth, you know. And then, mm-hmm. Yes, I'm Rory Kennedy. I was born two months after Bobby was killed. Her father was killed. Mm-hmm. And I love Bobby. I hugged her and gave her a raise. Well, the questions that they wanted to ask me about the fall of Saigon, final question, do you feel any guilt that when you cut off the use of U.S. air power, it led to the fall of Saigon? And I had to think about that, and I finally said, no, I don't feel any guilt. Because what our air power was doing to destroy Vietnamese people and their villages and the Laotians and Cambodians, I thought it was wrong. But any event, I, haven't, I want to see that documentary. It's now out. I don't know. It's called The Fall of Saigon, I think. It's probably on public television. It's ironic that Henry Kissinger's in the Oval Office assuring Ford that, that, that everything's fine in Vietnam when, you know, one country over, it's Sihanouk. Prince Sihanouk said that, you know, it's Nixon and Kissinger. Their bombing is what caused the whole destabilization of Cambodia and brought the, brought the Khmer Rouge into power. See, Jerry was powerless by then, and this may explain yeah. Cheney when he's later vice president. He had seen a president handicapped by a Congress that would not help him mm-hmm. in Cambodia or Laos or Vietnam. The Congress that had turned, and Congress has always been dumb, but, uh, you know, when Cheney gets to be vice president, he wants to restore the imperial presidency. Screw Congress. If they say don't go into Iraq, we go into Iraq anyway. Yeah. That's why the most interesting thing to me was when Obama decided to ask Congress for consent to go to war in Syria. And what bailed him out was the poison gas. Because 
he could go and say, we've talked him out of using poison gas. Congress wasn't going to give him the power to go into war in Syria. And it's questionable they give him the power to go to war in Iran. But in any event, you can understand Cheney, after he's seen mm-hmm. Ford handicapped, right. wanting not to see the president handicapped, when Cheney outed Valerie Plame with that guy, and he should have gone to jail, they, they pardoned him. They, they didn't. Yeah. It wasn't a part. They commuted his sentence so he didn't have to go to jail. Cheney wanted him pardoned so he'd have no criminal record. Now here we are, 2014. I'm a Democrat. Obama's got three years to restore international law. And my project now is to bring reconciliation between the two Koreas because we're responsible for that. We divided them. No Korean was asked if he wanted to be divided. And then in January 1950, the Secretary of State says... South Korea is outside our defense perimeter. And in April, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, Foreign Relations, Tom Connolly, says we're not going to fight in South Korea. They invited the invasion of the North. We knew Syngman Rhee would invade the North if he had the weapons, so we didn't give him the weapons. But the Russians gave them the T-34 tanks, and they had nothing that stopped those tanks, which rolled would have taken South Korea, would have reunited Korea had Harry Truman not... Sent in the Marines. Yeah. Saved the Marine Corps, incidentally. Well, they saved the the uh, Naktong perimeter. And the guy, the most interesting thing now, the Marines sent the brigade over there with six rifle companies, under strength. 200 men in a rifle company. Those 1,200 men were used like a fire brigade. And the final attack of the North Koreans that got across the Naktong were stopped by the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines that I later joined. An able company... The commander is now 93, gave $100,000 of his own money and then a guy named Don Reed, 100000 to build a Korean war memorial in the Presidio. And they said, McCloskey, we want you to be our president. I said, I don't want to be president. I'm living up on a farm. <laughs> they said, we need the prestige of a congressman in order to get the Korean government okay. to know that we're serious. Okay. And it turned out that one of my former staff guys is the head of the Presidio Trust. So they gave us a third of an acre, beautiful spot, overlooks the Golden Gate Bridge, right outside the gate to the National Cemetery. But to raise money, I wrote a letter to Sazian Airlines. They gave us 20000 Samsung gave us 180000 Chevron is the only U.S. corporation. They gave us 25000 And most of these old guys, there's not that many survivors of the war. We're selling bricks for $250. And I'm going to buy a brick for Ted Williams and one for... John Chafee and one for John Glenn, who both all flew airplanes in Korea. If they had interrupted Ted Williams' career, the last guy and maybe only guy to bat 400 ever in our lifetimes. So there's me a brick going to say, Ted Williams, CVN 36, Boston Red Sox. (laughs) And John Glenn, Senator, flew CVN 34, first man to orbit the Earth. But I, since I'm president, I'm going to be able to put those bricks in that goddamn memorial. Outstanding. All right, we're going to end it there, but we still have more to hear from the congressman, which we will do in the weeks to come. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.